Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, this is Eric Rivenis, creator and host of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm adding this little note to the beginning of this very first episode of the podcast. In March of 2018, 28 months after its original air date. I know that most of you listening are probably new to this podcast. I always start with the first episode too, by the way. I wanted to let you in on a couple of quick things. I started this podcast back then for selfish reasons. I've been collecting true crime history books all of my adult life and figured this would be an incredible way to meet the authors, many of whom have been idols of mine for a long time. Secondly, this first episode certainly isn't perfect, hopefully not too obvious, but but I made some rookie interview mistakes, like some over-editing and promising a theme to show with a, a couple of stories each week connected by geography. I learned really quickly how hard that would be. <laughs> And, and oh yeah, there's the slight gangster accent, which always served me well in my old tour days. But after a handful of episodes, I realized it wasn't quite working in this kind of format. Well, anyway, that, that's all. Enjoy the show, and I appreciate tremendously you choosing to listen to my show amongst all of the choices out there, and, and there are a lot these days. And by the way, for anyone interested in political true crime, I have a book called Dirty Doc Ames and the Scandal That Shook Minneapolis published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press, uh, available on April 1st, 2018. Pick up a copy if you get a chance. Some really fascinating, wonderful characters. And one of the craziest stories of political corruption by a mayor of a city you'll ever read about. Thanks again. Cheers. Most Notorious contains adult themes. It is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks all for tuning into the first ever episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. My name is Eric Rivenis, and I am an author and crime historian.
I've always found myself drawn to the dark side of history, the seedy underbelly that most of us, thank God, will never have to experience. My goal with this podcast is to kick back the rock and expose the worst of humanity to the cold light of day. The premise of this podcast will be simple, a unique time and place each week, an interview with an author, a historian, a forensic specialist, or a law enforcement official about a notorious historic crime, along with a story or two from me to complement the subject matter. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1920s and 30s, Twin City style. For those of you listening who don't know, Minneapolis and St. Paul sit right next to each other the two largest cities in Minnesota. They've long had a rivalry, even when it comes to crime. I thought it would be a fitting first subject because I am intimately familiar with it. Way back when, I started a company called St. Paul Gangster Tours, giving sightseeing tours of gangster-era St. Paul. We're talking about a who's who of Midwest bank-robbing royalty. John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and the Barker Carpus Gang all plied their evil deeds in Minnesota's twisted streets. First up, an introduction to gangster history, as told by Paul Maccabee, author of a gem of a book called John Dillinger Slept Here, A Crook's Tour of Crime and Corruption in St. Paul, published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press. Paul Maccabee, thank you for joining me today. Now, the title of your book refers to J. Edgar Hoover's first public enemy a 1930s outlaw of epic proportions. Even though Dillinger did a lot of damage across the country, he is still intimately associated with St. Paul's gangster lore. Can you start by talking about him and his close association with the saintly city? Sure. Well, you know, the irony is that John Dillinger, uh, when he was uh, essentially a teenager uh, and first was sent to prison, uh, he was not a master criminal. Uh, he was a terrible uh, criminal, actually. He was arrested almost immediately when he was robbing a grocery store, sent to prison. I believe it was for a 10-year sentence, something pretty brutal for a young man uh, who was robbing a, a grocery store. Um, but when Dillinger goes into prison, he meets many of the future members of the Dillinger gang, and Dillinger essentially gets a Ph.D. in crime. Uh, you know, he learns jug marking, how to look at a bank and decide when it has enough money in the bank. You know, it makes no use to rob an empty bank. So <laughs> Dillinger learned how to tell when the bank has money in it, you know, when deposits have been made. He learned how to, you know, do getaways. You know, there's a whole science to robbery and, and in particular bank robbery. And Dillinger didn't know that until he went to prison. So then Dillinger gets out of prison. His young wife, Beryl, has divorced him. Uh, Dillinger's mother died shortly before he got out of prison. So Dillinger gets out of prison, uh, bitter, angry, you know, divorced. His, his mom has died. And he's a good, he, a relatively good criminal when he gets out of prison. He immediately knocks over a, a police armory uh, you know, remarkable for a kid who could barely knock over a grocery store when he went into prison. And then he's attracted to St. Paul because it's a safe city. Because face it, Dillinger immediately turns to a life of bank robbery, robbing a police armory. Uh, you know, he becomes a wanted man, Dillinger does, very, very quickly. 
also he needed to be in a safe city. And there were a couple of safe cities, Cicero, Illinois, outside of Chicago, uh, Al Capone's playground, Hot Springs, Arkansas, very safe place if you're a criminal to be in Hot Springs, and St. Paul, where the fix was in. And you could have wanted posters with your face on it all over town. And for some reason, the police wouldn't notice you. And as long as you promise not to kill or rob anyone within the city limits of St. Paul, you could kill whoever you wanted to in Minneapolis or Milwaukee or Des Moines. Um, But as long as you as a criminal were on good behavior in St. Paul, then you are safe. You wouldn't be extradited. Uh, And the general population of St. Paul, the good people of St. Paul, knew that this fix was in. Uh, You know, people in their 80s, 90s tell me that they'd go out for a steak in St. Paul, and there's Machine Gun Kelly uh, sitting to their left, and there's John Dillinger with his beautiful girlfriend, Billy Frechette, uh, to their right, eating spaghetti. And they, and they weren't afraid because they knew that the criminals, again, were on their best behavior. So that's why this St. Paul City was so attractive to Dillinger. Plus, any, it was a Walmart for criminals. Anything that Dillinger needed for his bank-robbing career was here. If he needed a getaway car, St. Paul sold heavily armored getaway cars with police radios installed so the bank robbers could tell if they were made after a bank robbery. Um, If if they wanted a girlfriend, uh, uh, Alvin Karpus met the love of his life in St. Paul. So whatever you needed, guns, gun malls, or a getaway car, you could find it in St. Paul. The infamous gun battle at the Lincoln Court Apartments on Lexington Avenue is probably the most famous crime story from the city's history. A picture of the building even graces the front of your book. If you don't mind, uh, spill the beans on why Dillinger broke his lease so quickly. Uh, Sure, sure. Well, uh, if there's any landmark that the average Minnesotan knows that's associated with the gangster era of the 1920s and 30s, it's John Dillinger's apartment building, the Lincoln Court Apartments near Grand Avenue and Lexington. Uh, the uh, apartment building truly looks exactly like it did uh, in September in the 30s when Dillinger was there. Um, you know, the reason that apartment building is so fascinating is that uh, the St. Paul police got a tip that a strange character was on the third floor. They got a call from the landlady, Daisy Coffee, of that building. But in St. Paul, to get a tip that a strange man uh, acting peculiarly was in a particular apartment building, that was not unusual. So the St. Paul police, uh, along with a couple of FBI agents, when they came knocking on John Dillinger's door, they were not expecting a gun battle. They were expecting an odd guy with, you know, who maybe was a bootlegger or something like that. Uh, and of course, what happened was Dillinger was in bed with his girl. Uh, she pads to the door, opens it up and sees the cops there. Um, she forgets her own alias. Dillinger's alias was Carl Hellman. And the police asked for Mr. Hellman and uh, Billy didn't know what they were talking about and then remembered. Uh, oh, oh, yes, my husband. Yeah. So the police kind of knew something was up. 
but Dillinger blasted his way with the help of um, one of his machine gunners uh, of his gang out of the building. And it was a terrible humiliation for the FBI. Uh, there were calls for the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, to be impeached, to be removed. Uh, the, the Society of American Magicians gave John Dillinger its Harry Houdini Award for escaping from the Lincoln Court Apartments in St. Paul. So Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, was so humiliated that John Dillinger got away, uh, he asked his FBI agents to shoot to kill. And that, you know, kill Dillinger first, and then I'll interview him, essentially, was what J. Edgar Hoover said. That laid the groundwork for the subsequent fiasco at Little Bohemia Lodge in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, where the FBI opened up, uh, unfortunately, on people who weren't the John Dillinger gang. And once again, John Dillinger got away a second time from the FBI. So those were dark, dark days for the FBI and good times for Mr. Dillinger. Now, you mentioned Little Bohemia. Uh, Interestingly, uh, after the fiasco in Wisconsin, the gang comes hightailing it back to the Twin Cities. Can you talk more about that little uh, road trip back to Minnesota? Sure, sure. In in the wake of the shootout at Little Bohemia, where Dillinger and his men blasted their way out of that resort in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, um, they immediately headed back to St. Paul because as nice as Wisconsin was, and there was great hunting there, apparently the Dillinger gang liked to hunt for deer using Thompson submachine guns, which probably did not make for good-tasting venison, but they, they certainly had their fun in Wisconsin. But the fix wasn't in. Uh, they weren't safe in Wisconsin. They were safe in St. Paul from arrest. So um, they immediately uh, tried to drive over the Hastings Spiral Bridge, uh, and they knew that it was there. They had cased the area. Uh, it, the bridge no longer exists, but at the time, it was a spiral over the river. And uh, the, I believe it was the Dakota County sheriffs were laying in wait uh, to shoot Dillinger as he went over the spiral bridge, figuring that he'd have to slow down. But he didn't. He actually sped up going around the bridge and roared towards St. Paul. One bullet did pierce John Dillinger's car, but it didn't hit John Dillinger. It hit three-fingered Jack Hamilton, one of his buddies, uh, with a mortal wound. And ultimately, they ended up burying uh, Jack Hamilton after that. But still, again, Dillinger got away, even as the uh, law enforcement was shooting at him, and got back to St. Paul for safe harbor. Now, Lester Gillis, uh, better known as Babyface Nelson, was an on-and-off-again member of the Dillinger gang. He was uh, particularly sadistic, uh, even killing a man in Minneapolis over a traffic dispute. Now, now, these were some pretty hard men, uh, weren't they? Uh, Nothing romantic about them at all. You know, what's so striking is, um, you know, Bugsy Siegel, the the king of Las Vegas, used to say, uh, we only kill each other. Uh, There was actually another guy who was worried that he would be shot, and uh, Bugsy patted him on the back and said, don't worry, you're safe. You're not a gangster. We only kill each other. Um, but it was dangerous for the people of St. Paul to have these gangsters here. Uh, um, there was a, a famous young man, Oscar Erickson, 
who stumbled upon the Barker Carpus gang when they were changing a flat tire in Como Zoo in St. Paul. And one of the Barker boys blew the young man apart with a submachine gun. Um, and then, of course, Tom Kidder was shot to death by Babyface Nelson while he was driving to the suburb of St. Louis Park. So, you know, these were violent, lethal, crazy uh, men. And, you know, we look back on the 30s with, I don't know, nostalgia, <laughs> you know, partially because we've seen so many movies. You know, we saw Johnny Depp uh, portraying John Dillinger and Shelley Winters playing Ma Barker um, in the movie Bloody Mama. You know, so we look at the past through show business because that's how we remember John Dillinger. But man, oh man, these were dangerous hardened criminals. You briefly brought up the Barker Carpus gang, um, Elvin Creepy Carpus and the Barker brothers, Doc and Freddy, who pulled off some crazy stuff in the Twin Cities. They held up the Third Northwestern Bank in Minneapolis in December of 1932, uh, killing two police officers and uh, making off with $75,000. They held up the Swift Meatpacking Plant's payroll in the South St. Paul uh, Stockyards in August of 1933, uh, gunning down another policeman and stealing $33,000. And they even kidnapped uh, two well-known St. Paul businessmen, William Ham Jr., uh, heir to the Ham Brewery, and Edward Bremer of the Bremer Banking family, uh, getting away with $300,000 total between the two kidnappings and ransom money. Now, now their deadly hijinks are, are too many to mention in their entirety, actually. But could you uh, name a favorite Barker Carpus gang story? Sure, sure. You know, the favorite story has to be when the Barker Carpus gang was living in uh, West St. Paul on South Robert Street. I believe it was 1031 South Robert Street. Um, and uh, they lived there for a couple of weeks with Ma Barker. Uh, Ma Barker walked her dog up and down Robert Street. You know, they were among the most wanted criminals in America, living a lovely life. And um, their next door neighbor had a couple of kids. And apparently the Barker Carpus gang, as good neighbors, drove the next door neighbor's small children to school every morning. And their next door neighbor was reading one of the um, popular detective magazines of the time, like True Detective. And as he's paging through it, there's a photo of Ma Barker and the Barker boys, Freddie and Doc Barker, the Barker Carpus gang with Alvin Carpus. And he suddenly looks at it in horror and realizes, number one, oh my God, those are my next door neighbors. And then number two, oh my God, the Barker Carpus gang is driving my children to school every morning. And of course he calls the St. Paul police, which was probably the, the um, least effective thing to do because quite clearly the St. Paul police tipped off the Barker Carpus gang. And by the time the FBI got to Ma Barker's house, uh, they had cleared out. Uh, apparently the food was still hot on the table. Uh, Ma Barker's camera was still there. Uh, some furs, a few uh, bank bonds were left behind. But basically the Barker Carpus gang escaped because someone had called the St. Paul police. <laughs> 
So always good to know who your neighbors are. <laughs> now let's shift the subject to Minneapolis. I know for a fact that no one knows more on the planet about Isidore Blumenfeld, a.k.a. Kid Can, than Paul McAbee does. Can you talk a little bit about Kid Can, uh, who he was, and what his relationship to Minneapolis was? Sure, sure. You know, the difference between St. Paul with John Dillinger and Creepy Carpus and Minneapolis with essentially the godfather of Minneapolis, uh, Isidore Blumenfeld, nicknamed Kid Can, is that it was disorganized crime in St. Paul. They were outlaws. They were killing people. Um, they were, quote, on good behavior until they started kidnapping millionaires like William Hammond at Bremer. But still, it was pretty disorganized. You know, the gangsters in St. Paul actually didn't make a lot of money, <laughs> you know, in the scheme of things. Um, however, in Minneapolis, it was organized crime. It was uh, the business of crime. Uh, and Kid Can's people were involved with labor racketeering, ownership, illegal ownership of multiple uh, liquor licenses um, under all kinds of shadow names. Um, Kid Can most likely killed a couple of people, uh, most prominently Walter Liggett, the um, uh, newspaper reporter who most likely was either killed by Kid Can or one of Kid Can's men, if not Kid Can himself. But Kid Can's goal over almost 30 years of being a crook wasn't to kill people or, or kidnap them. It was to make lots and lots and lots of money. So that's what Kid Can did. He was much more like an, an organized crime figure like um, the Patriarchas in Rhode Island or um, the, the uh, Italian La Cosa Nostra in Chicago. Um, and Kid Can's reign lasted long after John Dillinger was killed. Uh, 25 years after Dillinger was killed, Kid Can was still breaking the law. So, so his career um, advice, obviously, is something... Uh, not to be taken lightly, Kid Can knew how to be a long-term criminal. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Kid Can was eventually brought down. Right, but by some weird stuff, including um, uh, taking a prostitute, who I think he was actually fond of, uh, over state lines, which is a uh, federal man act uh, violation. And then uh, he tried to bribe a juror, uh, to get out of a charge, and that was bad. You know, uh, they they don't treat you kindly if you try to bribe a juror. Um, so so there was some, you know, it's it's like when Al Capone was brought down with tax evasion. You know, Capone provably probably killed close to a thousand people. You know, so for Capone to be taken down for tax evasion is ironic, and for um, Kid Can to be brought down for jury tampering and taking a prostitute over state lines, you know, given everything that Kid Can did over a 40-year history of crime, uh, he probably felt it was unfair that the feds got him for what they did. But eventually, Kid Can, an old man, um, retired and went to Miami. Um, you'd often see him in the delis, the delicatessens in Miami, with other retired criminals, 
uh, Meyer Lansky, who was the most powerful um, organized crime figure in America, who was not Italian, he was Jewish. Uh, Meyer Lansky was a good friend of his in Florida. Um, and eventually Kid Can died at Mount Sinai Hospital in Minneapolis of old age, which is a lot more than most of his contemporaries in the 1930s got. Most of them were shot to death. He got to die of old age. So back to St. Paul, you write about the end of the gangster era in your book. How, how did the tide finally turn um, against these these hoodlums? So the end of the end, you know, if the Barker Carpus gang had not kidnapped William Hamm in 1933 and then Ed Bremer for almost a quarter of a million dollars ransom in uh, 1934, if they had not kidnapped those two prominent millionaire, upstanding citizens, it is quite possible that uh, St. Paul's infamous criminal period could have gone on for quite a few more years. But um, when the when the good people of St. Paul saw two of their most prominent citizens, uh, Bill Ham and, and Bremer, um, be kidnapped, uh, there was a, you know, horror and shock. You know, oh my God, we've We've rubbed elbows with these criminals for so long, and now they're kidnapping us. How can they do that? Uh, and suddenly there was an outcry, not only uh, for the apprehension of the Barker Carpus gang who had kidnapped the two millionaires, but frankly, to stop the corruption. You know, finally, the good people of St. Paul realized that this soup of bribery and corruption that had infected their police department and their judicial system that they can't have it because their fathers and uncles were being kidnapped for ransom. So that was the beginning of the end. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Tom Brown, the most corrupt St. Paul cop in history, never spent a day in jail. You know, he ended up opening up a bar outside of Ely, Minnesota and uh, was never successfully prosecuted. So in a, in a big way, the bad guys got away. Um, not Dillinger and his ilk, but the bad guy, the corrupt St. Paul cops got away. Um, but there was a cleaning of the house. And the corrupt cops were, shall we say, forcibly retired. And now St. Paul is known as having a, a very clean um political and law enforcement system, which, of course, in the 30s, it was known as the most corrupt in America. So it substantially cleaned up its act. We will be back after a brief word from our sponsors. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the 
unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. So a couple of stories now. These were both from an audio driving tour I published back in 2004 called St. Paul's Most Notorious. You'll have to imagine as you listen that you're driving through the streets of St. Paul in your car, map on your lap, listening to these tracks on your CD player. Yes, this was back when people actually had CD players in their cars. The first is about Dapper Dan Hogan, an early Irish mobster in St. Paul's gangster history. His house, which still stands today, is along West 7th Street. Uh, It's a mixture of an old working-class residential neighborhood and a business district. The second track is meant to be played while driving along the Mississippi River Bluff, close to a historic site called Fort Snelling. In the 1930s, the Hollyhocks Club would have been an isolated house, but a perfect escape for those who wanted to party the night away, free from prying eyes and ears. Today, it's a wealthy residential area, still with a fabulous view of the river. Let's go to St. Paul now. In the late 1920s, the main underworld fixer in St. Paul was Irish mobster Daniel Hogan, nicknamed Dapper Dan because of his flashy, snappy dress. He lived in the house three doors up at 1607 West 7th Street and managed a business called the Green Lantern Saloon in downtown St. Paul. The city is known for its colorful gangster past, and a lot of it had to do with the layover system created by Chief of Police John O'Connor at the turn of the century. O'Connor was, of course, concerned about keeping crime rates low, so in a unique strategy to do just that, he extended an open invitation to gangsters from across the Midwest. It became the general rule that if you wanted a place to lay low, hide out or just take it easy, and you had a prison-riddled background, you could live in St. Paul and not be bothered. In exchange for agreeing not to commit any crimes within the city's limits and to check in with police at your arrival, you would remain free to roam the streets of St. Paul without fear of police harassment. The system was a smashing success, both in bringing criminals to St. Paul and keeping the city crime-free. When a hoodlum came to town, the Green Lantern Saloon would typically be the first stop. Dapper Van Hogan acted as a liaison between gangsters and police, often introducing one element to the other, and he also acted as a personal banker, keeping his clients' money secure in a backroom safe at the saloon. Hogan was a local fencer as well, and laundered bonds, securities, stamps, stolen property, and marked money. One of Dapper Dan's most trusted assistants, Harry Dutch Sawyer, was often on the job in Dan's absence, helping to manage the details of their profitable business. 
Hogan had many enemies, and on December 4, 1928, one of them was responsible for the event that took place at this spot. On that morning, at approximately 11.30 a.m., fat from a big breakfast, Dapper Dan Hogan got into his page coupe. He had the car parked in the garage in back. Hogan climbed in, turned on the ignition, and stepped on the starter pedal. Unbeknownst to him, an explosive charge had been hidden between the engine block and the floorboard, wired to the bolt on top of the engine block and attached by wires to the explosive. As he started the car, the bomb detonated with an explosion so great the car leapt backwards out of the garage. The hood blew off and all the coupe's windows shattered, the gears flattened, and the steering wheel was blown from its base. As far as Hogan, his right leg was smashed beyond recognition. He was taken to the hospital, slipped into a coma, and nine hours later died from his wounds. According to some accounts, Hogan probably would have perished instantly if he had been the size of a normal man. He was fat enough that he had to lean back in his car seat a ways to operate the vehicle, and his head was somewhat protected by the distance his stomach created. Otherwise, his head would probably have been ripped off from his body during the explosion. One of Hogan's closest friends, Irish gangster Bugs Moran, a rival of Al Capone's, came quickly from Chicago to tend to Hogan's family. He was evidently so distraught by the event that neighbors watched him march up and down the sidewalk in front of the home during the days following the murder, guarding the family from further possible harm. No suspects were ever arrested, and Hogan, even on his deathbed, refused to name names, but fingers quietly pointed to the Green Lantern Saloon's assistant, Harry Sawyer. Before his death, Dapper Dan Hogan had told his wife, Lila, that he had $50,000 in cash in a safe deposit box and instructed her to collect the cash in the event of his death. When she went to get the money, the box was empty. The only other person known to have a key was Harry Sawyer. After Hogan's murder, Harry Sawyer inherited the Green Lantern Saloon and took over for Hogan as St. Paul's underworld power broker. This, by the way, was the first successful car bomb in American history. 1590 South Mississippi River Boulevard is the focus of our next story, the large, stately home with pillars in front and a circular drive. This was the home of the Hollyhocks Club in the 1930s, the premier elite nightclub of its time. Seventy-five years ago, it sat here in splendid isolation, connected by a dirt road and surrounded by prairie grass and wildflowers. Legend says the Hollyhocks flower where the club would get its name. The owner of this upscale speakeasy was a local mob boss and gangland leader named Jack Pypha. The club was large, three stories of non-stop entertainment. A guest arriving at the Hollyhocks Club would be met by ex-boxer and mater D, Walter Saft McKenna, whose joint duties included managing the dining room and paying bribes to local police. After being seated, tuxedo-clad Japanese waiters would serve patrons the finest liqueurs, wines, and steaks in town in the first-floor dining area. After a little food, people would head upstairs to either swing the night away on the dance floor or head to the gambling room, which was the primary draw of the Hollyhocks. Craps, roulette, and blackjack were the popular games here. On the third floor were private bedrooms, including the living quarters for Pfeiffer and his wife, fashion model Veronica Pfeiffer. While most of the Hollyhock Club's patrons were businessmen, politicians, and the social elite, Jack Pfeiffer had plenty of friends in low places as well. Among frequent guests were Elvin Creepy Carpus, Doc and Freddie Barker, bank robbers Vern Miller and Frank Nash, shotgun George Ziegler, who was a hitman at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre for Al Capone, and members of John Dillinger's gang. One of them, Dillinger's right-hand man Homer Van Meter, loved the food here so much that during a nationwide FBI manhunt for him in 1934, Van Meter found his way to the Hollyhocks Club for one of their famous porterhouse steaks, which he had delivered to his car so as to avoid any unneeded attention. 
Jack Pfeiffer himself dabbled in all sorts of illegal activities. He helped the Barker Carpus gang pick Ham's brewery heir William Am Jr. as their first kidnapping victim in the summer of 1933 and assisted in the planning. Pfeiffer also laundered ransom money collected by Machine Gun Kelly after he kidnapped oilman Charles Urschel in Oklahoma. On June 17, 1933, bank robber and frequent Hollyhocks Club diner Vern Miller attempted to break his friend Frank Nash out of FBI custody in Kansas City and in a bloody gunfight ended up killing Nash, three police officers, and a G-man. The botched rescue resulted in the Kansas City Massacre. As Hoover began his intense investigation, feds uncovered a criminal relationship between Miller and Jack Pfeiffer. After extensive wiretapping, the FBI soon discovered that the Hollyhocks was in fact the control center of crime in St. Paul, and Jack Pfeiffer was the man who pulled the strings and had a hand in, or knowledge of, just about every major crime pulled by gangsters in the area. Ultimately, his association with the ham kidnapping would seal his fate. As the FBI broke the backs of the Barker Carpus gang, Pfeiffer would go down with them as an accomplice. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison in May of 1936 after being found guilty of kidnapping William Ham Jr. Before he could be transported to his final destination, however, Leavenworth Prison, he somehow got a hold of a poison pill made of cyanide, took it and his own life, preferring a quick suicide to the slow one he knew he'd suffer from a life in the pen. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting true-life tales of historical crime to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. <laughs>